Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 86. Today's guest is Denise Duhamel, a wonderful poet. Can't wait to talk to her and look at her new book, Second Story. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995. That's 26 years. We are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry. And I know you love poetry because you're here spending your Tuesday night with me. So please do click the like button, share, uh, subscribe, make sure you're uh, following, click notifications, wherever you're watching this. There are many platforms you can listen to a podcast or watch a live stream. Wherever you're doing that, make sure you click something to let the computers know that you like it because that's the only way computers spread stuff to people who will like it but don't realize they'll like it and then everybody will like it and then there'll be a lot of liking going on. And that's what we want to do. So please uh, do that if you would right now. Um, now, as I mentioned, Denise Duhamel is our guest today. Um, Denise is a distinguished professor at the University MFA program at Florida International University in Miami. Uh, we interviewed her in round number 24 way back in 2005. It was one of the first... Um, um, issues that I helped put together is uh, early on in my days at Rattle. Um, she's also um, the author of a whole bunch of books. Queen for a Day, New and Selected is a, is a highlight. Um, Kinky is a classic. Scald is, is not too long ago. And um, the most recent is Second Story, which I'll put on the screen now that just came out hot off the press from the University of Pitt Poetry Series. Here it is. Second Story. Yeah, so this is Second Story, a beautiful book by Denise DeHamel that just came, just arrived in my mailbox last week. So go pick up a copy from Pitt Press. That's U-P-I-T-T-P-R-E-S-S dot org. You can find it there. And now here is our guest today, Denise DeHamel. Hi, Denise. How are you doing today? Great. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, do you want to start us out with a poem? Sure. Um, what if I read the first poem from the book? Is that Yeah, that is that is perfect. It's a great way to okay. start any book, I'd right, say. Perfect. So you'll sort of get an idea of what's going to yeah. go on. Okay. Um, the first poem in the book is called Folkways. I see the sea getting closer. I read will soon run out of drinking water. I floss the steak out of my teeth. I should be vegan. Even the teenager told me so. She said I had the right sandals and earrings. I step off the plane, look up my carbon footprint. Greenland is melting due in part to my recent Google search. All my dead iPhones, along with scraps of bologna and turkey bones, add to the landfill populated by vultures in some countries, child scavengers in others. I buy South American fruit and North American groceries. Sustainability is a hoax, the article says, but I recycle anyway, cycle instead of drive when I can. Emma evacuates Santa Barbara, wildfire in her rearview mirror, a laptop covered in ash and a few books in her trunk. I say goodbye to my furniture and clothes whenever I evacuate for yet another hurricane, decide what to bring, what to leave behind. My friend's favorite joke, what is the population of Bombay? Wait a second, let me check my watch. When I was young and naive, I had a foster child from Bangladesh. This was before, before I knew how much the charity's CEO was making. I was an adjunct in New York City with three jobs, but knew I was rich by comparison. I could pretend I was a good person, my sanitized love and concern reflected in the drawings the child sent. 
I started to volunteer instead at the Catholic worker, ladling soup and oatmeal into plastic bowls. The homeless smelled like I would have smelled if I didn't have running water or a toothbrush or quarters for the laundromat. Eileen Miles slept outside their New York City apartment with the homeless, but was sure not to use any resources the displaced needed. Miles took their own food so that the truly needy could get first dibs on dumpster bagels. Until you have no toilet paper, you can't imagine how precious it is. No tampons or moisturizer or shampoo. I live in Florida now, where a graying man makes his home on the beach. He is a war vet, my neighbors say, but I am not sure which war. There have been so many. He showers where others simply rinse off sand. He waited out Irma in the shelter while I drove away with friends. Now he sleeps near the restrooms in the park and shovels down to the surf, takes his morning swim. When he catches me leaving him half a roasted chicken, he says thanks for the delivery. He says maybe his luck is changing. Maybe one day soon the ocean will come to him. And that was Folkways, uh, the very first poem from, uh, from Second Story, Denise Duhamel's newest book. And I was wondering as I read that, Denise, did you write that poem before, um, before Hurricane Irma? Because that, there's that long, the main sequence of the, um, of the book is that long Terzarima sequence um, about Hurricane Irma. And then the, the book is kind of like foreshadowing or, or that poem kind of foreshadows that. And I was wondering if, if did that precede the book or is that or the, the hurricane or, uh, or was that after? It was, it was right after the hurricane. Um, I wrote folkways because mm-hmm. I did, you know, a lot of it is just, I did see this man that I always leave food for. And anyway, he was like telling me this horrifying story about how he stayed in the shelter. And, um, I was working on the poem Terza Irma, which is the middle poem, um, for about a year. So when I started to like prepare for Irma, mm-hmm. I was just writing in my notebook, writing, writing, you know, journal, 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 and um, you know, and wrote way, way on until my apartment was restored. I mean, it was like it, pr- it was pretty much demolished. So um, I had all these journal entries, and a lot of them were just like, I can't believe I'll never get walls. I can't believe there's not an electrician, whatever. But then um, I thought this is not going to be a poem. It's just too like all over the place. And, and, um, I had this idea of doing Tertsarima. So I took my, those journal entries and kind of used the memories, right. I had all like a lot of details of what happened on each day and then, um, use that to make a poem. But I, this one was a lot easier in terms of like, okay, I could write it probably in like three days as opposed to Tertsarima, which took me a year mm-hmm. to complete. I don't know. Talk a little bit about, about living there in Florida, because I think this is the only poem that, that addresses the hurricane, although the the hurricane was a big central part. That that long poem is so, um, I don't know, like if you ever want to, well, I don't know if you'd want to, but if you if you wonder what it's like to live through a hurricane like that and have to evacuate and then come back to, you know, the, the trying to not let black mold grow all over your house that has been drenched in water and all your books ruined and, and trying to, you know, no power and all that stuff. Uh, it's just such a... a harrowing account really um what is it is that how many hurricanes like that have you been through and um like were you sort of a, a veteran of that or, or or is this like the worst you've been this was the worst one for yeah. me i mean I know a lot of people a lot of my, some of my students or my friends from florida are probably listening or might read in the open mic so they've got their own like hurricane disaster poems but this was the first um i moved here in 2000 
into to Florida in 2000. And that was the year that um, I thought Al Gore was, I knew climate change. I mean, I'd known since I was in sixth grade that, you know, like we're going to run out of oil and whatever and the ozone layer and all, you know, just, I, I was very aware, but I thought in 2000, it wasn't that scary, mm -hmm. even though I should have been scared because I would, my first hurricane that I experienced was, um, I was married in 1992 and I flew in right as, um, Andrew began hurricane Andrew. So this was like before you could have a, the weather channel. I don't even think existed then, or if it did, I didn't know about it. And I remember like flying into the hurricane and the, you know, the rental car was gone. We had to evacuate from the honeymoon site and just start driving. And it was, it was, hor you know, that was really the worst one. Um, but I didn't live here then, but somehow when I moved here, I thought it was like a once in a lifetime thing that people go through. But of course now with, um, the climate crisis, everything is accelerating. So my first really bad hurricane was 2005 Wilma was really, that was the, you know, Wilma, that was the same year as Katrina. And, uh, there's been, that was pretty bad too. That was a really bad one. So, so have you thought about moving out of Florida because of that after having gone through that? Because one of the things that um, yeah. with the with the pandemic that, that's going gone on, that was something I was always worried about, but sort of never happened. <laughs> and so it's sort of a reminder or, or just a wake up call that like, hey, these things that you worry about that haven't happened yet and everybody's just sticking their head in the sand and pretending they're not going to, um, they're yeah. going to happen. And so yeah. living here where we do on the we're on the San Andreas Fault and then we're in the in the wildfire area too. And everybody just lives here, and you know, every time there's a fire, we're like, "Oh, good thing the town was saved that year." And right. um, it just makes me think, like, God, like, wake up, Noah, get in your ark, and go somewhere in the middle of the country where there aren't disasters. <laughs> do you think like that? Have you thought about leaving Florida, or do you just love it too much? I, I love my job, and I love my friends here. So um, I always understand, you know, like. When people say like, well, if you're dumb enough to live in Florida or if you're dumb enough to live in California, what do you expect? But like if your life is there, mm -hmm. it's a whole different thing. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, I, I mean, especially after Irma, I was like, okay, I can't, I can't go through this again. But then now it's March and it's beautiful and you have hurricane amnesia and you think, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. But I know it was really bad. But, you know, I guess it's kind of like you go through these traumatic things and you just kind of black box them or write a poem and just kind of forget. But yeah, I always thought, oh, I'm just going to move to Florida and I'll be all set for retirement. And now I'm like, well, will Florida even be here? You know, like I can't be doing this when I'm 90. Like I can't be, you know, dragging, you know, like soggy stuff to a dumpster. It's like, yeah. So I have thought about it, like what I'll do after I retire, if, you know, maybe... Maybe it's not the wisest thing to stay, even though it's a great place, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how we feel here. Like, I wouldn't want to live in California anywhere else. It's such, I love this town, and I love the nature, and when it's not a scary time, <laughs> right. when, you know, when the ground's not shaking, it's great. And um, it's, it's such a sort of a microcosm of the macrocosm of the bigger environmental crisis that we're going through, you know, that, like, we'll just, you know, we'll deal with it eventually, and then... We just end up staying where we are kind of in the same way, which is something you address in other poems in the book. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like I really thought when I moved here in 2000, I thought, well, Al Gore, like, he'll, he'll fix it. <laughs> I don't know. I just Like, I, I remember when I was – this really happened in sixth grade. I wrote a letter to Richard Nixon, who was our president then, 
complaining. I was like, you know what? We've got to do something about this ozone layer. We cannot have aerosol cans anymore. And then aerosol cans, like those giant things like Aquanet or whatever, were banned. So I was like, okay. So my, I was so naive because my first political action actually resulted in change. But ever since then, I haven't had any other luck. Yeah. Oh. yeah, that's just the way it goes, I guess. Um, yeah. Do you want to read another poem? Sure. I thought I would read... Um, I was well. I, I watched some of it today. Um, you know the the George Floyd um, proceedings, and I thought you know this is thirty years ago. Well, twenty nine years ago, nineteen ninety two. Um, so I, I wanted to read this poem. Um, it's called Wednesday, April 29th, nineteen ninety two. The first night of the Rodney King riots, my then boyfriend convinced me to stay home, though I wanted to go to the New Yorkian Poets Cafe where there was a protest open mic. It could get violent, he said. Because I was somewhat self-actualized, I refrained from calling him a coward. Men, I thought, can be afraid too. I was confused as he seemed so much more political than I was. He could name all the American senators and battle dates that were smudges of scrambled time in my brain. He had lived through a coup in another country he wasn't willing to join in demonstrations and, earlier in the day, predicted the looting that would happen in L.A. I'm not blaming him, but blaming myself for not going alone. For all the times I've stayed quiet, tucked my neck deep in my collar. Though revolution is just around the corner, the guillotine and third estate. My boyfriend and I stayed in playing Scrabble, feasting on vanilla Sara Lee cake. That was Wednesday, April 29th, 1992, from, from Second Story. Um, I was looking back at the interview that we did, um, and, and I always like to know, like, how poets fell into poetry, you know? Like, like how did you become a poet? That's always something that, that kind of interests me. And, I, and it wasn't actually mentioned in the interview uh, back then in 2005 or whatever. So, so how was it that you found yourself into poetry? And just sort of spinning off of that, like, what do you think um, poetry does? Like, what draws you into um in pursuing it like what is the goal of publishing it like like how how does that tie together i'm just curious that's a great well i started that's a great question so in fourth grade i have another reason i'm like obsessed with climate change I, i'm a pretty bad asthmatic so in fourth grade i spent the whole year and pretty much the whole year in a children's hospital because asthma medicine wasn't as great as it was there when i was on machines and stuff and i had this whole new set of friends who were kids, you know, with leukemia, cancer, cystic fibrosis, whatever it was. And so I started writing books. I literally was self-published at 10. <laughs> so I would take books. I, I would take like, there were, I don't even know if they make it anymore, but like paper that has those three holes in the side for binders. And I wrote my stories about, and so in these stories, every kid, would become like some kind of superhero or have magic powers and they'd get us out of there and suddenly we wouldn't have diseases and it was all very fantastical and then I'd <clears throat> make my own cover. So it'd be like, you know, we have drawing on the cover in the back I'd write blurbs, like it would be like the best book I've read all year, Mary Tyler Moore, <laughs> you know, I'd just make up my own blurbs. And then I would give them away like to whatever kids. So I knew from very early, so fourth grade, I guess that's when you really start to have language acquisition or feel like you can tell a story. Um, so that would have been 
like nine, I don't even know, 1970 or something like that. And then I sort of just was always writing in my di- I had a million diaries, like tons of diaries, but I had no idea that poetry existed because at my school, we studied Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, and that was sort of it. So I thought, well, they're dead. People don't make their own shoes anymore. You know, people, you know, don't like turn their own butter. Like I just thought poetry was this quaint thing that happened way, way in the past. But then in college, um, I was going to, I went for social work and, you know, I, I didn't know, but I wanted to be a writer, but I, I didn't know what, to, what I was doing really. <laughs> like a lot of, you know, like a lot of college undergraduates. And then I went to a poetry reading, um, a woman named Kathleen Spivak was reading these poems called the Jane poems and they were tiny and they were all these persona poems about this woman named Jane. And I was like, what's that? You can do that. And then I just abandoned everything. And, and I was like, this is what I've been doing in my journal. I mean, badly, but this is sort of my impulse to write these like short, shorter narratives. So then I, that's sort of how it began. Like I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I thought it'd be like, I want a journalist or something and then, uh, or writing, I don't know reports as a social worker but then poetry just opened up everything so I guess I would say in the culture at large um what I love about poetry and why I think it's so necessary is you know it's it's unfiltered language language that hasn't been um gone through an ad agency or through a political spin machine or you know or even like a sitcom you know that there's such freedom in poetry to not work in sound bites or to like speak the unsayable or what you wouldn't say at a dinner party, you can put in a poem. And that's, that's what I love about it. Do you ever- And I, I want to say too, I love the um, rattles. I always read on um, every week, the, the weekly rattle poems. They're so good. Those are poems about, well, your viewers probably know, but poems about the news. I just think they're fabulous. Well, thank, yeah, it, it's so nice to have poetry be relevant in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and poetry is really about like creating meaning, you know, it's creating mm-hmm. meaning out of the chaos of life. And, and um, you know, not a lot of speech does that these days, I guess, because like you said, everything is advertising or, or you know, yeah. built by a team of, you know, a board of directors to polish with a lawyer, the right statement or whatever. Or like branding. I hate that. I'm like, I hate, I mean, I know it's probably, you know, I know it's necessary, but I'm like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no, because no, that's you, like, you can't friend a poem. Like, you, you mentioned freedom though. Do you ever worry about like offending people with what you publish or, or is that thought even occur to your mind or, or something that like, oh, I shouldn't say that. Does that ever happen? I, it happens all the time and I just work through it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just like, oh God, no, no. Well, but I think, you know, but I mean, I think Sharon Knowles has a great quote where she says a poem never killed anybody. So, I mean, I think like poets walk around completely guilty, feeling all, you know, like, oh, I told this secret or, oh, I hope they don't feel bad or, you know, I hope the president doesn't come after me, whatever it is, you know. But um, I think you just have to do it. And and it, it really isn't to, I don't know, There's a, I'm reading a book now um, by Oliver De La Paz and it's about, um, bringing up neurodiverse children. He has like three kids that have autism. It's so amazing. And the first poem is like apologizing to them, Hmm. you know, and and it's like this great line where he says, but I'll never be able to write about my children. And then Alicia Ostreicher just punches him in the arm and he does it. (laughs) Cause I mean, that's his life, right? Is, you know, what's he, 
and he does it through myth. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, a beautiful book, you know? So I think you just have to write what you have to write. Yeah. Yeah. And let people say what they're going to say. I guess. I mean, you bring up that book. Um, we had published Tom C. Hunley's book about his kids who, um, and, and he got a lot of the reviews were like, you have no right to write this, you know? I know. And, He's, uh, <laughs> I met those kids. I, that, it, I love that book. It's so good. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And, and, that. So is the other one you mentioned too, actually. Um, mm -hmm. um, so I should just say, if anybody has any questions for Denise, I'm following the chat windows on both Facebook and YouTube. So either way, um, if you'd like to ask a question there, I'll pass them along to Denise later in the show. So ask questions now whenever you would like. Um, but for now, let's hear another poem. What do you want to do next? Great. Um, maybe I'll do Howl. So um, this is uh, Howl based on Allen Ginsberg's Howl but it's my hell. <laughs> okay. Hell. I saw the best minds of my generation, i.e. Fauci, Burks, undermined by Trump, doctors hungry for truth, dragging themselves through inane press conferences at five, trying to fix the press's anger. Angels with hip replacements and fashionable scarves holding up graphs, making predictions, scientific dynamos trying to break through to give us light who, in spite of political tatters and hollow men, sat up zooming in the virtual darkness of cold hard facts, floating across cable news host desks, contemplating death rates, who bared their brains to the World Health Organization and saw Monday night riots, angels staggering in Lafayette Square, flashbangs illuminating, who passed by unimaginative reporters with radiant cool eyes, pleading with Americans not to drink bleach, tragedy among the non-scholars of pseudoscience, who were expelled from news conferences by a crazy and obscene know-nothing on the whims of a numbskull, who cowered in green rooms, undercut, retrieving their speeches from wastebaskets and listening to the terrible thump of Trump through the wall, who got their words twisted, regurgitated, returning to Joe Scarborough with a plan for keeping nursing home patients and prisoners safer, flattening the curve in New York, who urged the closing of hotels and theme parks, paradise, church, shopping malls with their mannequins' torsos glowing night after night with dreams of capitalism, now a waking nightmare of alcohol wipes, cock and endless balls no longer welcome in gentlemen's clubs, strippers shuddering, clouds of debt, no spinning on poles, no dollars, Canadian or American, all the motionless world of highways with no cars. Peter Pan's playing solitaire on their iPads, plots and more plots dug up in cemeteries, drunken, safer-at-home moms and dads banging pans from windows and rooftops in honor of first responders who were busy at work, their kids home from school, storefronts boarded up, blinking traffic like ambulances, but not much else, sun and moon and tree vibrations and the spring dusks of Minneapolis and Louisville and Buffalo, until George Floyd, until the protests began, the best minds of the next generation chanting, demanding sanity from the worst King America, who is clearly out of his mind. And that was Howell, uh, another new poem from Second Story. And uh, the poems in this book, um, I've always thought of you as a, as a pretty political poet. Um, and I just want to, and, and these poems are, are sort of maybe a little more overtly or, or directly, I guess there's different sort of definitions of political but there's more of, um, you know, political party, like election politics in these poems than mm -hmm. I think in the past where there are more political like causes that come up. Um, mm -hmm. How do you how do you just um, go about 
writing political poetry because it's 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 always a complicated thing. I always think about um when I think we talked it was oh yeah it was Troy Jollymore in the interview with him and he ha- he said something about how um he doesn't like writing political poetry because it ends up being sort of cheerleading for your values. And so it's sort of like everybody just agreeing that like, this is what good people think or whatever. And uh, he, he thinks that it doesn't do any good. I, I might be paraphrasing wrong, but he said something like that, you know, and I just kind of think about that a lot. Um, how do you sort of get around that? Or do you not think about it? Like, how do you approach politics within a poem? And, and what is your goal sort of like, what are you trying to do with a poem like, like Cowell? Right. Okay. So that, that is such a good question. And I know poets debate this endlessly. And I think myself in the past have been, well, like skirt around it because I just said, right, like you don't want to be political speech is completely um, devoid. I mean, I don't know, it's completely corrupt at this point. But I felt over the past four years, things spun so out of control (laughs) that I was like, wait a minute, I can't just write a book and not mention this. And in fact, Howell, I put in, Howell and um, the pan, I have a poem called Pandemic Pantoum. Those I put in the last, the very last minute, like I called the editor and was like, I just think people are going to think like I just slept through the whole thing. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, wait a minute. So I just remember, um, you know, reading, an interview. It was with some, oh God, I'm forgetting, but it's a, um, a poet maybe from Turkey. And he was just saying, you know what, it's, if you're going to read a book a hundred years from now on like the American suburbs, you're going to be like, wait a minute, <laughs> what was going on? They were just like having affairs and like self-loathing, but like, you know, just doesn't bring in the world at all. So I've always brought, felt like it's important to bring in the world into my poems and maybe like in Scald, which is my pre- previous book, I remember writing it thinking that I thought for sure Hillary was going to win. So it was all these like women in power, not, you know, not that I thought Hillary was like the best candidate or anything like that. Um, but I, I just thought it was going to happen <laughs> and then it didn't. And then my book was like, Oh, this is like weird, you know, this is really weird. And this was just a crapshoot because I didn't know. But I also felt like I had to speak up. I feel, I mean, that's kind of like the Rodney King poem, like the Wednesday, April 29th. That's going to, 1992, it's going to haunt me forever that I didn't go. Not that it would have made a difference that I went, but it, it just, it's a, it haunts me that I just stayed home playing Scrabble. It's just like one of those, like, I don't want to say, I guess I would say it's one of the regrets of my life, really, which is stupid in the scheme of things i've done much worse (laughs) in my life but it's like i should have been there and i feel like a lot of white poets or i don't know i I don't know just like it's ridiculous not to speak up for me yeah well that makes a lot of sense for sure and and i think um you know something to regret where you didn't do what you wanted to do and you know it's a it's a i think we have regret because it's a life lesson that we can move you know that's why we feel the feeling of regret so learning from that and not repeating it is kind of what regret's all about Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, um, the, the interesting thing is that your, your poems have always been political in a, in a broader sense. And, um, and what you've always done a great job of is sort of undercutting it with like humor and sort of getting it at an angle and sort of not really, um, I don't know. I mean, there's a way that, that you, and I think we know more now just psychologically about like the backfire effect and how it's so hard to get through to people. Like if you, if you hit someone in the head with something, 
too firmly. There's that cognitive dissonance that just triggers and then they shut down. And so getting through humor and through other angles, through poetry, is, is something that, um, that can work, I think, maybe. Do, do you think of that? Like, who is the audience for your, your book? Do you imagine somebody reading something and having their opinion shift? Is, is that something that comes to mind at all? Or are you just not thinking oh, that, that far? Be- that would be fabulous. I mean, I have had my mind shifted by poems before. I really have. Um, so I think it's possible um, and empathetic. I guess for me, like when I when I pick, when I'm writing, not that I really am that aware when I'm writing, but when I'm done, this sounds really weird, but I always wanted to write for like younger, my younger self or younger people who feel, you know, disenfranchised the same way I felt disenfranchised or that, you know, it's that old cliche of like, if you could come back and you're yourself at 20 and say, now, don't you worry, you're going to live on the beach. Sure. You might get, (laughs) you might get like destroyed, but it's going to be okay or whatever. You're going to, I don't know. I just feel like it's like reaching out, not necessarily younger. It can be older too. I mean, just people that, um, think, and worry and have the same anxieties that the rest of us do, you know? Yeah, that's interesting that you say writing to yourself. Do you always um, or usually have someone in mind when you're writing? Because that's one thing that, like on our critiques that we do on the Friday, a lot of times mm-hmm. I'll suggest people imagine that they're actually speaking to someone because that makes the voice be very particular and it makes mm-hmm. it feel more intimate in like the subconscious way. Is that mm-hmm. something that you usually do? do you, are you usually thinking of like a former self or somebody in particular when you write? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, I mean, when, like, so when I, I guess when I wrote Howl, I was actually thinking, I only met Allen Ginsberg once, and it was like, you know, it was just like, hi, Allen Ginsberg, you know, hello. <laughs> like, it was just like, it was a nothing, but I was like, what would he, I mean, I write, like, okay, to the younger self, but also to, like, the dead, right? Um, what would he do right now? Like, would he be still trying to levitate the capital or, you know, like, I don't know. I just, I think there's a way to um, reach beyond time. Like time gets all uh, fractured in, in poetry too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a question just while we're on the political topic. Uh, Richard Westheimer asks, um, when you write a political poem, do you start out writing a political poem or do the politics write themselves into the poem as the poem leads you to it? Like, do you have that in mind ahead of time? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the the latter. Like, I, don't, I would never set out. I mean, I probably never set out to actually write a political poem. But then, you know, then it's like when you're thinking of the self, and like you, you think of like all your like in my case like the, all the discrimination because I'm a woman, but all the privilege because I'm white. All that you know, and I have a job, and I, I have health insurance. Like I never thought I'd have health insurance, and here I you know. So like I'm aware of all those things. So it's hard to just write um, for me like in interior. You know what I mean? Like it's like I'm always like reaching out outside too. So I don't usually, I mean, I guess with how I, I didn't know I was giving this assignment for years because, um, Amy Newman wrote a really cool how it's up online. I think it's on poets.org if anyone is interested. And I was so in awe of it. It's sort of a feminist version of Howl, and you know, it's fabulous. And so I kept like giving it to my students and 
you know, a few people got something good, but it, it just was like kind of a flop as a prompt. Like I thought it would be the best prompt ever. And, and then anyway, when I was thinking the best minds of my generation, well, now I'm writing from like a 59 year old perspective. So it's not like, you know, so I thought, oh, my generation, Fauci and Burks, they were the best. So then that's kind of what led it to, I mean, I didn't know I would go this far, but I, that's sort of, I was kind of thinking of their plate, speaking truth to power, which poems do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, let's move on to some more poems because we want to make sure we get a good number in. People start getting oh. upset if we talk too much. All right. Yeah, no, <laughs> they say, well, Tim, this is a poetry podcast. And it <laughs> is. Yes, of course. Of course. All right. So. I, this one, all right, this one is kind of political, but not in that, like, I hate you, president kind of way. So this one is called, I Love Sex in All Its Forms. And I wrote this poem um, for the poets in the audience. I'll know what a pantoum is. Um, but otherwise, if you if you don't know what a pantoum is, it's just you repeat lines and you'll hear them repeated. It's not that I'm crazy. It's just that that's what the form does. And so one day I had to fill out something at FIU, I guess. And they said, well, I said, well, I never got it. And they said, check your spam folder. And I had not been in my spam folder for like years. And the first spam was the, the subject line was, I love sex in all its forms. And I was like, like a pantu? <laughs> like, I just kind of like, really, really? And it was from Mindy. And then all the ladies, loved me. I had so many like, I don't know, they thought I was a straight dude, I guess. I mean, so anyway, so everything in this poem really came to me in an email. Because <laughs> once I started opening, I, I forget about the form I had to do for FIU, but I was just, you know, completely obsessed. So okay, it's called I Love Sex in All Its Forms. Spam email from Mindy. Hey, big guy, I'm lonely and wet. Being in love, a blessing or a curse? My boner brew will make you a better screw. I just added three new naked photos. Being in love, a blessing or a curse? Text me, I guarantee we'll have a blast. I just added three new naked photos. Wanna hear me talk dirty in my luscious British accent? Text me, I guarantee we'll have a blast. What should I do? I'm married, but only want you. Want to hear me talk dirty in my luscious British accent? Need a hot date with a sexy lady? What should I do? I'm married, but only want you. We don't have to explain ourselves to anyone. Need a hot date with a sexy lady? I'm gorgeous and only 2.8 miles away. We don't have to explain ourselves to anyone. Are you man enough to rock my world? I'm gorgeous and only 2.8 miles away. Here are some other girls you might like. Are you man enough to rock my world? I'll prove to you we're the perfect match. Here are some other girls you might like. Don't forget to leave space in your life for me. I'll prove to you we're the perfect match. Are you available, literally or metaphorically? Don't forget to leave space in your life for me. It's raining men and I need one. Are you available, literally or metaphorically? My boner brew will make you a better screw. It's raining men and I need one. Hey, big guy. I'm lonely and dry. And that was, uh, I love sex in all its forms. Um, uh, and there are two questions come up already about, um, about pantoums. Um, okay. 
So first of all, um, Lisa Batista says, I literally was talking to my brother today about Denise's pantoons. I'm obsessed with the form because of her. And then Mara Bade um, Carr says, I love pantoons so much. I'd love to know how she chooses what form to write in or if the form goes in after writing a first draft. So that's kind of what I was wondering, too. With your pantoons, how... Um, do you have any advice for people for writing pantoums since you do write a, write a good number of them? Um, yeah, there's quite a few in the book, actually. The, yeah, the pandemic pantoum and the Mother's Day pantoum. There's all, yeah. I think when the pantoum is one of my favorite forms for figuring out an obsession. So like in this one, I guess it would be a found pantoum because all of these were, you know, these spam messages or whatever. Um, and I didn't know what to do with them, but I knew I had to do something because it was just too bizarre and too hilarious. And I'm like, oh my God, is this really what men, did men get these emails and believe them? You know, like, it's like, they were so intimate. Like when, you know, are you available literally or metaphorically? I was like, that's almost good. I mean, it's like a good line almost. And it's like, like, do, do they really think that these women like that? You know, I was all kinds of questions. So I just sort of like, I just started looping them and looping them and playing with the order. So this is um, one that's a bit of a, you know, I guess this is a bit of a cheating one. But for me, it was the obsession of trying to figure things out. Um, I think that's always good for a, um, a pantoum. So there's one in the book. It's really long. I, I won't read it, but um, Mother's Day pantoum. And it's about memory. So it's like my mother telling, like, these stories over and over, but then the details change because she's getting older. And I, you know, so that it was a really good form for things that you obsessions or things you can't quite figure out. I would, I would really go with the pantoum. And what I like about the pantoum, it's not, you know, if you're writing a sonnet or a villanelle, um, you, you're really constrained to that many lines, but a pantoum can be as long or as short, you know, you can just like, it's an accordion. You can just go as long and short. But anyway, I, um, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> One of my students. Yeah. It seems like, um, every time I read your, your work, I think of this, that you sort of have a lot of fun playing with, with poetry mm -hmm. and just playing, playing with creativity. So with a pantoum, I mean, I, I imagine part of the fun is just seeing how far you can push it. Right. Cause it could go on as long as you want. Um, yeah. Um, so, and, so yeah, and then you know that it has to like end on that first line, and and, and you know you want to make it like something happen. So yeah, it's fun. it's a lot of fun. So so um, talk a little bit about that though, because you do a lot. Um, you know, just across the spectrum, um, you you write a lot of collaborative poems. You mm -hmm. do a lot of um, visual poetry with artwork. I, that, that I always think of that the Jahari window poems that we published of yours that were on the blinds. <laughs> in that visual poetry issue and you flip them in the poem like flips and changes. And um, uh, just talk a little bit about how like you approach creativity. Like, like how do you become so broadly creative? Uh, that's a weird question, but, but how do you, how do you approach creativity? I think that's, no, I think it's, I understand. I think it's a great question. I still have those blinds. They're in storage. So oh, I really? did this poem where you could read it two different ways. Yeah. Anyway, it was, that was so much fun. I still want to like have an art show someday and put them up or, Whatever. So thank you for publishing those. Um, I would say about creativity, my favorite quote is, um, I just said this in class a couple of weeks ago, um, Carl Jung, who said that um, like breakthroughs and, and genius, you know, not that I'm a genius or even close, but like this idea of 
the genesis of new work comes from not from hard work, but the play instinct. Like I always think if you're not having fun writing, like don't even do it. I mean, even if even if it's the most depressing poem I've ever written in my life, I have fun writing it or revising it. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain it, either it's cathartic or it, it like I'm I start out really serious and by the end I'm laughing or you know there's something like if you you have fun with form. I know form isn't everybody's cup of tea, but for me, it's just been a godsend in terms of like getting my mind to work a different way. Yeah, I, I always think of um, that Zen and the Art of Archery is one of the best books on writing. And and there, and, and he, he talked about archery, but he says that, um, you know, talking about um, watching a child play and saying, um, you know, you would not think that the blocks are playing with or you would not think the child were playing with the blocks if not the blocks were playing with the child, you know. Like there's that sort of sense of this, this interactive nature of just like having fun with it that um, we have at a young age and then we lose when we're older usually. And so it's tough to sort of stick with it as we get sort of burdened down by the weight of of actual responsibility and things like that. I know, like I'm really like a, I mean, a child in so many, I mean, not in good, I mean, I try to be childlike instead of childish, but you know, things like making doctor's appointments, like, oh. Why not to do that? Like, I still have that. Like, I'd rather be playing. I'd rather be writing a poem or playing with blocks even, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's hear, hear the next poem. Um, what do you want to read next? All right. Um, what if I read? I'll read a, um, a person. So this is called Poker Hands, just to show that I can write things that aren't political. Um, this is a poem about an elegy for my dad. Poker Hands. The day you left us, you almost forgot to wave goodbye as you followed the anesthesiologist to the operating room, scuffing along in nod-skid slipper socks, one of those surgical caps on your head. You were going to a sterile and cold place when mom said, wait a minute, what about my kiss? You came back and then turned and waved goodbye with both hands, hands that could pull out pies from the oven without potholders, hands that could shovel and make snowballs without gloves. All those years of baking from the freezer to the proof rack to the ovens made your hands what they were. Your poker hands, which dealt the cards for pitch and 21. You were serious when you played, tapping the table so we'd pay attention. You had nicks and cuts and burns you shrugged off, just like you shrugged off the surgery. We were so sure you would come around, sore, yes, depressed, maybe. We'd read up on all the side effects of the procedure, but you were ready, fearless, man of Bayer and Vicks, the only medicines you really believed in. I know it's too late, but I'm sorry I was a jerk so much of the time. I'm sorry I was such a spoiled brat. You only bought one luxury your whole life, a leather lounge chair, while I wanted a guitar, a new coat, like the other girls, brand name jeans, a bike, and money for the movies. I grabbed everything with my weak hands that turn blue in a cold room, ricochet when the faucet runs too hot, hands that get chapped doing simple things like dishes. Now that you are no longer here, sometimes my hands are your hands, when they are empty and still and grateful, when I fold them to pray the way you did, When I helped someone like you helped me the morning I woke up with a hangover after a high school party. You poured me a glass of orange juice and plucked a pickle from the jar and put it on a saucer. 
The combination worked, our very own father and daughter dance. Soon after, we went to the airport so I could board my first plane to travel farther than you or mom had ever been. I stooped, having second thoughts, my paisley suitcase suddenly too heavy. Mom told me we could turn around, that I could stay home, and you told mom, honey, you've got to let her go. After the agent took my ticket, I turned and waved, my pudgy fingers, my purple polish already starting to chip. Then I followed the other travelers to the rest of my life, scuffing along in my sneakers, one of your baseball caps on my head. That was Poker Hands, the, the second poem in the book, Second Story. And, and another example, too, of, of that writing to someone, how intimate that makes the poem feel. You know, it, it's really interesting because when you read a poem, you sort of become the speaker, you know, because the speaker is the voice in your own head. So like the person mm -hmm. who's speaking. To, but then also when it's an intimate poem to someone, you're like the receiver, too. So you get this weird, like super empathy rush or something where you're, where you're both people mm -hmm. at the same time and you can feel sort of in both places. It's just fascinating to read. Uh, that was one of my favorite poems in the book. I'm glad you read that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, let's see. So, so here's a question from, um, um, Lisa, Lisa Smith. Um, how do your Rhode Island roots influence your poetry? Oh, is that Lee Smith? Lee oh. Smith. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Hi, Lise. <laughs> um, I, it's so interesting how when I'm in Rhode Island or when I was in Rhode Island, I couldn't write about it at all. I just couldn't, I just didn't, I just didn't. Um, and I always seemed like I have to be away from a place to write about it. But now I've been in Florida so long, I, I can write about Florida just because, you know, I've been here. But I think my Rhode Island roots um, do play a part because even though Poker Hands, I just said, was, wasn't was a political poem, even as I was reading it, I, I wanted to stop and go, oh, wait a minute. It was because my dad was completely blue collar. He didn't, you know, if, if he didn't believe in shampoo. It was like, why buy it? That's expensive. You just use soap on your head. You know, like he's very, his, he grew up in a cold water flat. He, you know, didn't go to high school. He was a baker, et cetera. So I must have seemed so foreign to him. So I think all that Rhode Island stuff that I tried to get away from, like, I'm not like this. I want to have a giant life. I want to go in an air airplane. I want to go to another country, you know, was so um, different than, growing, you know, the people I knew in high school were just, you know, a lot of them are still there. A lot, you know, many people just were very happy there. And it is a great place. I love Rhode Island. And um, so I think it informs me in terms of like working class roots and, um, and, you know, like I have a really strong, strong sense of politics from Rhode Island because there was a, a unionized supermarket I worked for and then all the mills shut down. So I was really aware of, you know, jobs going over to China. Well, that happened in like the seventies for me, you know, so I, like I was really aware of all that stuff. So Rhode Island still plays a big part and I miss it. I actually do miss it a lot. Um, back to uh, the political questions. Um, Arnaldo Batista asks, um, how did you I navigate writing the poems during such a hard time? I hear a lot of people nowadays say not to write about coronavirus or Trump because of overexposure, but you did it anyway. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how do you how do you juggle that? There's a, there's a great balance in this in this book, too. Uh, you know, you just when you think that you're sort of, you know, going in one direction, it, it sort of pulls back and moves into different directions. So how, how do you how did you juggle that? 
Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. So the reason that Poker Hands is second and um, I guess Folkways is first is that, I mean, it, it, no one would even know this except it's just in my brain, like the way my brain works. It's like, you know, why am I, you know, I, I'm on a plane. I know it's really bad for the environment. This is pre, you know, <laughs> pre-pandemic. I know it's really bad for the environment, like my carbon footprint. I'd look it up, da, 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 all that stuff. And then how, you know, when I was, you know, 19 and going away and as an exchange student, no one in my family had been out of the country. And it was like, I got on the plane, you know, and, and how innocent it was then. I never felt guilty about it or thought about the oil in the tank or whatever. So that's kind of how I put those together. But to go back to Arnaldo's question, I know Arnaldo also wrote a poem about the pandemic that was published. And um, I don't know. I, I think that wait, tranquility, no, recollection and tranquility just never worked for me. It's like I just, I remember when I knew, like, my parents were in this horrible accident in 2003, and I went home to take care of them, and I stayed up all night writing about it, and it turned into my book, Kaching. You know, it's like, I just, I don't, maybe that's like, in the beginning, I wanted to be a journalist, you know, so I, I guess I just, if it's happening, I'll write it down. Mm-hmm. You know, I just remember having a fight with my ex-husband, and I'm like, go ahead, say it say it, I'm gonna put it in phone, <laughs> you know, it's like he was screaming at me and I'm like, go, just do it. You know, like, I just feel like, I don't know, it's almost like memoir in a weird way, like documenting my life. Yeah, or just being engaged with experience, you know, as you're going yeah. through it, which is what I think the, the wonderful thing that poets do is so they, they, they engage fully with every everything they're doing, um, yep. which is why I thought the Poets Respond series was such something I wanted to do because it make poet relevant in the... Uh, in the moment. Um, the first pandemic poem I read was on um, the, the Weekly Poet. Yeah, we had one from, ba- from yeah, uh, just a few weeks ago, Anthony Tao, for anybody who isn't here. He, he's in Beijing. So he was That's there right funny. when the lockdowns were starting in February and wrote a great yep. epic kind of poem. Um, yep. But let's read, I think, how many more did you want to read? I think we have two more left. Um, sure. Um, so let's maybe read the... Yeah, let's do one, okay. and then we'll do more talk, and then one more. Okay. Okay. Maybe I'll do the, um, uh, I'll do Dear Memory, because this is the last poem in the book, so Folkways is the first, and Dear Memory is last. And this is um, another, for anyone that um, wants a prompt, <laughs> I know that Tim's going to give you a prompt, but um, write, letter poems are the best. I love a good letter poem, and um, David Hernandez has a great book, Dear Sincerely, and it's like, you know, so a lot, a lot of the... Dear Mortality and Dear American Amnesia, all these are, are kind of homages to him as well. So, well, well let me anyway. cut, you, cut, cut you off right there. Uh, we, okay. make that, we can make that the prompt this week, but give me a little more. Le- a letter poem. Um, um, how and, about a letter poem to an abstract concept? A letter poem to so, an abstract concept. Okay, let me find so a like, pen. So like Dear uh, Time, Dear Love, Dear uh, Politics, Dear Okay, let's darkness. do it. Let's do it. Perfect. Okay. Great. All right. <laughs> Okay, so here, should I read this one? Yeah, go ahead. We're going to do two more poems. Oh, two more? Yeah, that's what I was saying. So one, do oh, okay. one, and then, then, then we'll I'll finish the on the last, last one. one. Okay, I'll okay. read the last two in the book then. So this is Climate Crisis 2019, and um, where the, the title poem comes from, the title of the book comes from this poem. Climate Crisis 2019. The greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Sir Robert Swan. 
My Uncle Will in his wicker rocking chair, riding the waves. I'm watching him from an almost submerged second story window. I thought this recurring dream foretold his death, but after we buried him, the dream kept coming. Eventually, I bought a dream dictionary, which said the flood meant I might have pent-up sexual desires. I loved my uncle in a chaste way, so this interpretation made me feel shame, as did the second definition, suggesting my demands were overwhelming, flooding others. Uncle Will was an environmentalist, the first person I knew to get a Vespa in 1970, saying if it was good enough for Gregory Peck and Roman Holiday, it was good enough for him. My uncle thought, even back then, we should all be using solar power. Now, the Florida street upon which I live floods even when the sun is shining. The dream's window was telling me I needed to go out into the world and experience more life, though it's risky to travel through flooded streets not knowing what's under the surface. Not until today did I think to look up uncle, which the dictionary says might point to powerlessness considering the say uncle idiom. So maybe the dream foretold not my uncle's death, but a second story, the impending death of the planet, corporate greed twisting all our arms, hoping we'll admit surrender and defeat. What nags me still is that rocking chair, defined as the wisdom of elders, as comfort and ease, taking us back to when we were sleeping babies, that deep safety, someone else taking care of everything. And that was Climate Crisis 2019 from A Second Story. Um, since we have a bunch of your your um, um, students here, there are a few people I think you mentioned were students already. It made me yeah. wonder, like, what? How do you think um, the, the state of of your students and teaching has changed? Because you've been doing it for a few decades now. Have you noticed like a, a change in in what poets are wanting to do, or, or what? or shifting in what the the goals or styles are like how do you think it's changed because i was just reading that interview from 16 or 17 years ago and, and how, yeah. how has it changed since since then wow um well i would think people the poets i've been teaching at the same school for 20 years but um the poets here we have much more every year it seems like more and more a sense of community so we have something in um miami called oh oh miami which is a, a month-long festival in April. And a lot of my students get involved. Well, this year it's going to be, you know, uh, remote. But in the past, a lot of students have interned for them, worked for them, um, so that there's a, a poem a day going on in Miami or a poetry reading every day for the month of April. Um, we have the Palm Beach Poetry Festival, the Miami Book Fair. I feel like poets, um, my students have become much more engaged in fact, one of um, the alums of our program was started in Miami through the Knight Foundation. So I feel like there's much more of um, multilingual. So there's like poets who speak Spanish, who write in Spanish. Um, there are Haitian poets. There, you know. So I, I feel like there's much more community actually mm -hmm. now. And maybe I mean I, I political in quotes, but I think people are really interested in. Um, expressing that part of themselves in a way that maybe they weren't when I first started teaching yeah, here. Yeah, something that so. seems to me that's changed a lot just in the 20 or however many years I've been doing this is that, you know, there used to be like sort of the cliche of like some cloistered poet sitting with their books, you know, I've got my books and my poetry to protect me, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's not the case anymore with um, 
with spoken word and festivals and, oh, and yeah. just so much stuff, you know, there's so much engagement with the with the outside world, not just inside books, which is really interesting to see. And it probably has I, to do with it becoming more political, you know, and, and poetry yeah, being more engaged that way. When I was, well, I talked about in that 1992, you know, that Rodney King poem, when I went, to, I went to Sarah Lawrence for grad school, which is in, anyway, right outside of New York City. And I remember Sarah Lawrence was like, oh, we cannot have, you know, spoken word, no. And then I would go to the New York Week in Post Cafe where it's all spoken word and they were like, ugh, I would never get an, F, you know, an MFA, that's stupid. Like, and it was like this two camps. And now I feel like it's, you know, it's kind of a non-starter. I mean, I think it's spoken words in the academy and then the academy is doing spoken word too. Have you ever done a slam or, or been? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, was, I loved it. I loved the slams. I loved it. They were so fun. Well, we'll do one, one last question from the audience. This is a craft question from Brittany Torres Rivera. Um, oh. How do you negotiate line breaks in narrative poetry? I noticed mostly end stops in poker hands, but more enjambment in climate crisis. Do you have any rule or theory about that? I do. So, um, yeah, so poker hands, I think I knew what I wanted to, or I felt like I knew what I wanted to say, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I think also the longer the line the more uh, the more willing I am to do an end stop. I I think sometimes like those little tiny lines with end stops. I mean, I think some people do it beautifully, but for me, they're just like, I feel too precious. Like, <laughs> like I can't, it just doesn't fit my voice. Um, I, but I, I actually do like, um, enjambment more. If, if I had to, you know, if it was like, you can only do one for the rest of your life. End stop or enjambment, I would always choose enjambment. I just think it's more interesting in terms of, you know, multiple meetings and, and things like that. Um, like in poker hands, like I, I was more interested maybe in like, well, I didn't know how I was going to end the poem. You know, I never know how you're you know, no one really knows how you're going to end. But like the scuffing along in the non-skid slipper socks, um, you know, the surgical caps, right, that people have to wear. And then at the end, it's like, I'm scuffing along in sneakers. So like, I, I kind of become my dad. And then I'm wearing one of those baseball caps on my head. I mean, I'm going on, I'm going to travel, but I'm also going towards death, because we're always going towards death. That would be like, if I had to write a paper on my own poem, <laughs> I would say that. <laughs> well, you just gave someone a, a term paper idea. So. There you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, uh, we're just about out of time. Do you want to finish up with a uh, dear memory? I will. Yes. Thank you. So this, this would be like one of the prompts, you know, like the, so you could pick a, like one of my other poems in the book is like dear mortality. So, okay. So it says, dear memory, what have you done with my keys? I blame you though. It's hard to hold a grudge these days because I usually don't remember why I was angry in the first place. I look at a person sure she's done me wrong though. The inciting incidents are lost. Former students seem familiar, but their names disperse like cigarette smoke, blowing towards a stool where I once drank myself sick. Now I'm not even sure what city that bar was in. The welcoming pink neon letters, another cloud, as though I am looking at tiny prints without my reading glasses. I was on a pink cloud when I first stopped drinking. In fact, I once looked up at the moon weeping in gratitude. So there, I do recall something. I was walking across the Brooklyn Bridge in an ex's sweatpants, though I'm not sure anymore of his name or if I ever gave those sweatpants back. 
I'm usually halfway through a movie on Netflix when I realize I've already seen it, probably in an old-fashioned freestanding theater, perhaps a matinee or a midnight screening, perhaps a popcorn bucket on my lap. That is, if I wasn't on some fad diet. Did I take my pain pill or not? I'm drinking water, but not sure I can detect that bad taste all the way back on my tongue. Maybe I have been drinking more water than I thought. Is it time to go to the gynecologist again? The office usually sends me a reminder postcard, but today I'm holding a letter from the breast center saying it's time again for my mammogram. I usually get a prescription from the gynecologist about a month beforehand. This is how it's been the last few years. I wonder if my doctor is retired or dead. I would call him, but I have forgotten his name. It begins with an S, and I think I remember the exit. I look through the stack of business cards I save for moments such as this, but no card for him. I go to take out the recycling just moments after I took out the recycling. I stand at the fridge, its door ajar, the cold light bulb, an idea for a poem which I've also forgotten, a sublime dream that woke me in the middle of the night, a sublime dream I was sure I'd never forget. Ah, here is my key ring, but this gold one with the big square head, what lock could it possibly open? That was Dear Memory from... uh... Denise Duhamel's newest book from Pit Press, second story, a poem I can really relate to personally. uh, (gasps) Megan can attest to that. (laughs) One of my students wrote back after reading this poem and she said, I'll see you in class Wednesday if you remember who I am. Like yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah, that that's me too. Um, but anyway, thanks so much for being a guest, Janice. It's a pleasure as always. And and as someone said um, in the comments here, your energy is just infectious. So um, it's just a oh, pleasure thanks. brightening us up all our days and uh, sharing this new book with us. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for having me, Tim. All right, I'm going to go listen to the open mic now. Okay. Yep. Good night. <laughs> thank you. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye. Yes, that was Denise Duhamel with uh, her newest book, Second Story. And as Denise mentioned, there's going to be an open mic, uh, which there always is after the show. But if you're new, let me tell you how it works. So email the poem now to openmic at rattle.com. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. You can send a poem that relates to this week's prompt if you want. If you happen to be a regular viewer and, and watch, um, have a prompt poem ready. You can send a poem um, that you just want to share anywhere. You can send a poem that's been published. Just send me a link. But email me. Um, Email me a poem to openmike at rattle.com so we can read along just like we were with Denise's book when, uh, when she was reading her poems. After you do that, then pick one or the other. Um, send a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word, over Skype. Uh, that's me at Rattle Poetry on Skype. Just say hi. I'll say hi back or push the, um, like, Phoebe Wilcox. I just accepted her hello. Uh, so I will do that. And then I'll call you back when it's your turn. This is how we do the open mic reading list. The other option is to call in by phone, 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times, then hang up, and that'll put you on the uh, call list too, and I will call you back within the hour. Uh, and if you're a new person who's never read before, we'll definitely get to you. If you're a veteran who's here every week, we uh, will try to get to you, but we'll get to as many people as we can. That's how we always do it. So in um, the prompt, as I mentioned, uh, we have a prompt every week. And uh, Denise provided the prompt for next week. But for this week, the prompt was to 
Oops, I, I don't have it written down. The prompt was to write a poem in the voice or, or as from the perspective of someone else. That was the prompt. Write a poem in the perspective of someone else was the prompt for this week. So if you have one of those, email us to openmic at rattle.com if you haven't yet. And of course, there's, there are the numbers. Um, someone from 786 is calling right now. So we'll call whoever that is back later on in the show. Um, for right now, I'm going to take a really quick break, stretch, and get all this stuff organized, give you a minute to uh, email me those poems that you would like to share later. Um, also, I should mention, too, there's a delay. So when you call in, just have your phone open. Um, just talk to me there, and don't talk to me. Uh, don't watch on YouTube because there's like a 30-second delay, and it will get confusing. Now, um, as I take a brief break, let me put up this. Next week's guest is going to be uh, Alice Petway. Um, Alice was the artist. Um, she's a photographer, too. Uh, for the Ekphrastic Challenge at the end of 2019, I think it was. She has a new book out, though, Station Lights, and she has a poem in rattle number 70, and that is Alice Petway. She'll be the guest next week, Tuesday, April 6th, at the regular time, 9 p.m. Eastern, on Rattlecast number 87. And now just give me a brief minute, and I'll be back in about 30 seconds. back thanks so much for your patience uh just i don't like to sit in one spot and we need time to uh, get all this stuff organized now as i mentioned the prompt this week uh, was to write a poem that explores what it would be like to be someone else and thanks to cb99 videos on youtube for getting me the perfect wording there Um, that was the prompt for this week which i forgot to put in my show notes but we did put the poems that we wrote in our show notes so here is uh, my poem and this was uh this is channels and i was thinking about being my brother who uh, got in a car accident last month and I was thinking how um how narrowly he escaped a worse car accident I guess and um so I meant to get like an eye toward the end so I was actually the speaker but it didn't really work out that way and and poems got to go where they go so this was my poem for the prompt uh channels sometimes static on the screen of the windshield sometimes the stars from Star Trek Stretching past warp speed, the fat flakes of February melting on the glass faster than the wipers can whoosh them away, beating out of time against the rhythm of the rock song on the radio, keeping the driver awake but barely, fingers drumming at the wheel, humming along over the hum of the heater, two eyes fixed on the two tracks, the last car made on the almost invisible road, almost empty at almost midnight, until a gust of wind or the body giving in shifts the world and the rear wheels are sliding on the center line, two headlights resolving through the snow like a station coming in through the adjusted antenna as the hands correct or overcorrect in to calm or panic, into the spin, and it's time for someone else to choose the channel. One film, a head-on into darkness, one, a night in a ditch, a stitch in the morning, the third, a near-miss, pulling into the half-shoveled driveway, thinking, then forgetting that was close. That is my poem uh, where I inhabit my, my little brother, who thankfully only uh, had some stitches, and that was it, but it uh, could have been much, much worse. And here is Megan's poem. Um, I am the woman sweeping the Target parking lot. I see it all, couples arguing over the lamp they didn't need, children spilling trails of popcorn, crows descending to feed. The way people's eyes dart when a man asks what they can spare before a flustered manager says, you can't do that there. 
and I wonder where he'll go as he disappears across the highway. Some people stay in that damn store for almost a whole day, and I wonder about that too, and if the crows remember my face, and why folks keep bumping into me like I'm a cart left in the wrong place. I'm the silent witness to your spills, your trips, your sneezes, your words. When you hope nobody heard that, I am the nobody who heard. And that is Megan's poem. I am the woman sleeping, sweeping the target parking lot. Another excellent poem. Megan is just so good, isn't she? Um, and now let us see what you have for us today. We will go, I'm going to do a, um, a veteran poet first. So you can kind of see the drill if you're new, but then I'll start calling, uh, um, then I will start calling new poets after that. And the first person to ask here was Angela Gartner. So a veteran caller. We'll call up Angela first, then we'll get to um, Nivedita Karthik. We'll get to um, Phoebe Wilcox, who is new. We'll get to the 786 number that just called, whoever that is. Um, so do join us, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, we'll see. Let's call up Angela right now. And I'll find Angela's poem while we do that. Sorry about that. No problem. How are you doing today, Angela? Good. No camera today. <laughs> yeah, no, no camera, no problem. That's always the rule. But what, what did you want to read? Well, it, it's kind of funny because I wrote this a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. but it's called um, Her Reality in Stone. And it kind of goes along with the prompt, but... But it definitely, um, it's something I wrote for Poets Respond, actually. So what was that? Um, what was the new story that inspired it then? Uh, the new story was about Sarah Everhard, who um, in UK, she was kidnapped and murdered by um, a policeman was actually the person that is a suspect in that. And so... I just, I think as women, we've all been in these kind of situations and it's not, I shouldn't say all, but I mean, a lot of us. And I was just kind of going off where I was thinking about as women, you know, we're kind of like sculptures sometimes, you know, people, you know, look at us and they want to, you know, they just don't have that good perception of reality. We're just an abstract to them. You know, and it's it's something that, you know, that's what I kind of got the idea about her reality in stone. Like, you know, we are in the middle of a park and just, you know, we want they want us to be something that maybe we're not. So that's, you know, that's that's how I got this idea. And I was just thinking about, you know, how many times, you know, women are. um women are abused and harassed and, and even, even, um, not really heard as much as, as, and seen. So that's, that's really the basis of this kind of going off while, you know, we're not made of stone, but, you know, sometimes I feel like we could, people think that. Yeah, really well put. And, and unfortunately, yeah, I mean, it is all women. And it's it's an awful, awful thing. Um, but let's hear the poem, Her Reality in Stone. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Her Reality in Stone. Standing in the middle of the city square, we fold our arms, careful not to expose our breasts, holding the house keys upward for protection. We are told to stand still and be picturesque. 
They try to shape us into an image of perfection while stretching the soft clay into its place. Fingers run down the edges of our vulnerabilities. Our eyes are frozen in the mirror of other faces. We are given flowers and sideways commentary. They walk by to leer and snap pics feverishly. We remain like our traditional stone sculptures. Pieces of us are damaged. We beg them to cease. Shifting our gaze downward, we can't scream. They oogle and touch, dining on our bare bodies. Cemented to the ground, we just want to be seen. So thanks so much for sharing that important poem, Angela. It's uh, Her Reality in Stone by Angela Gardner. Thanks, Angela. Thank you. Have a good night. Yep, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that was Angela Gardner with Her Reality in Stone. Um, let's see. Yeah, have a whole bunch of quotes. Let's do Phoebe Wilcox, though. Um, Phoebe is a first-time participant. We'll see what, uh, what Phoebe has. I see your poem here. Hey, Phoebe, how you doing? Can you hear me? Hi, I just... Um, I have to shut the YouTube here. Hey, no problem. Um, and if you wanted to turn your camera on, it's not, but you don't have to. Oh, okay. How do I do that? Let's There's a little see. camera button between the hang-up and the mute. There's a little, like, camera icon. Oh, okay. Just click I that see. and you should come in. Okay. And I'll get your poem set up as you do that. Apology to my protagonists. Yeah, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, good to see you. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, I wrote this poem a long time ago, but um, it's been kicking around, so just like my protagonists have been kicking around <laughs> and kicked around. Um, okay, so apology to my protagonists. The caseworker in my novel will put the case in caseworker. In the beginning, she's fine, really, and I could keep her that way, but it wouldn't be a novel, and she wouldn't be my exalted protagonist, unless something truly interesting, challenging, and yes, perhaps even absolutely horrible, happened to her. Unfortunately, it's my job, as a novelist, to wreak complete and utter havoc in her life, and for this I do apologize. On a daily basis, I must forge ahead in making her life difficult, hers and those of all my characters, actually, because readers like havoc, and I must fulfill their desire for adventure, for pain-smeared pages, for tears passionately or silently cried, for anger expressed with delicacy, or perhaps the breaking of expensive china. The reading public's hunger for drama, I cannot disappoint. So, dear ones, I am sorry. You know you are my favorite characters. And if I had to do it, if I had to do it all over again, and with editing, you know I always, always do, I'm not sure I would write it exactly the same way again. In another draft, I may yet spare you, because I feel so close to you, I have grown to admire you all, every facet, almost as if you were my shadow selves, my children, my friends, my lovers, my enemies and frenemies. You are, even the weakest among you, complex, resourceful, resilient, 
I know you can take what I dish out. I mean, if I can write it, you can take it. So forgive me the bittersweet ending, whatever it is. You know I am plotting it even now. Yes, with every innocent start, I carry the seeds of guilt within. Every joyous beginning leads us word by inevitable tripping word ever closer to the possibility of your broken hearts. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, Phoebe. That was Phoebe Wilcox with Apology to My Protagonist. And, uh, and what's your most recent novel? Um, well, uh, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I had a book out called Angels Carry the Sun uh-huh. about a teenager who, who is completely obsessed with her English teacher, high school English teacher, and mm-hmm. pursuing him relentlessly. Um, that is now out of print. It was published by Lily Press. Uh-huh. Um, and, but right now I'm, I just finished my second, I'm not finished. I'm seven pages away (laughs) from my second edit of a book, uh, that is about, um, a woman who has flashbacks to a previous life. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, um, she was, uh, prosecuted as a witch in medieval France. And in this life, she's, um, a law school dropout. (laughs) so you go back and forth between these two um and i'm i'm loving it i'm I'm having i've had so much fun with it and i i have uh an agent who is probably you know half my age (laughs) I, i i'm not sure i quite have her but i almost have her and she's interested, and she wants to see it, so I'm, I'm excited. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> on that, Phoebe. We'll keep an eye out for it, and, uh, and thanks for calling in and sharing the poem. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank good night. You. Bye-bye. It's Phoebe Wilcox with uh, Apology to My Protagonists. Yeah, let's just call up Arnaldo right now. He was next in line. Hello? Hey, Arnaldo, it's Tim with Rattle. How are you doing tonight? You're live on the air. Oh my god, that's insane. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So glad you could join and uh, share a poem with us. Uh, but first of all, you're one of uh, Denise's students, I think. She, I think she's, you're one of the ones she mentioned that way, right? Uh, yeah, fortunately, um, I am. I came for her um, because, you know, she advertised it to us. <laughs> but I'm so glad that I, I stayed because um, I learned so much about her. And also, you conducted an amazing interview. Oh, well, thanks so much. Um, I, yeah, it's always fun. We do this every Tuesday. And um, maybe I'm getting okay at it. <laughs> no, you're pretty good. I, I want to come back for the upcoming week's um, little podcast. It seems really fun. Awesome. Well, I hope you can. Um, and it, before before you read your poem, let me say, let me ask, uh, what do you think the number one thing you learned from Denise is as a, as a student? I didn't really learn. Well, I learned, well, you know, Denise is Denise. Um, but I think that the main, the main thing that um, I took away from this is just like the person who she is um, as my professor is the exact same person she is like, you know, just out of the kind of scholastic situation. She's so charming and so endearing and just so intelligent. And um, I love that I could see that in a different sphere. Well, it sounds like you're you're very lucky to have her as a as a teacher, and everybody in your class is too. Um, do you want to go ahead and read this poem, Dear Puberty? And, and is there anything you want to say about it before you do? Um, actually, 
Could you pull up the, uh, I sent a link. It's to the Marsha P. Johnson, um, I'm sorry, to the Arlington issue. It's like a 216. Yeah, I have that here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'll read that one. Okay, so so do you want to say anything to introduce this one then? Yeah, so I wrote this at the high, I thought it coincided really well with um, Denise's kind of political poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this at the height of both coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter protests. And I'm uh, a gay man and a lot of my friends um, are in the community down here. They're trans or non-binary. And um, they felt it was very important to kind of shed light on the trans black women who kind of promoted the Um, gay rights movement at Stonewall, specifically with Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Um, So I wrote this during that time, and um, it was published by Arlie Joe, which um, it was a dream of mine to happen. So I'm really proud of it. Great. Well, let's hear it. I put it up on screen for everybody uh, right now. Go ahead whenever you're ready. All right. So it's Marsha P. Johnson is arrested for the 101st and last time. Darling, look at you. I could throw pebbles at the Christopher Street Pier, darling, and hit 10 other men with the same bloated gut belly, dear, the same triple chin layered boar face, youth fort proud like a fisherman props up his trout, honey. You'd think you are so different from the men who shackled me, who shot me, who raped me just two nights ago, love. Be original. I am from Elizabeth, darling. Don't you know you can't throw down a girl from Elizabeth? a drag queen from the slimy stone burrows of Manhattan, honey. So don't pester me, boy. I could throw one brick at the glass window of the paper house you call America, darling. Then watch it, honey. Watch it cake crumble. Uh, Excellent poem. And and again, another example of their writing a personal address makes everything feel much more intimate. Thanks for sharing that. No, for sure. Thank you for giving me the platform. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. I hope you can join us again. That was Arnaldo Batista with Marsha P. Johnson is arrested for the 101st and last time. Thanks, Arnaldo. Thank you, thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Okay, and let me get him in the uh, our phone book, too, before I forget. And that way I'll know who I, I can remember. The problem with a phone book is I can't remember the numbers, so I don't know who I've already called. But if I put a name there, I will remember. Okay, um, let's see. Up next, let's do... Um, let's call up Nivedita Karthik. <clears throat> See how Nivy's doing tonight and what she sent. Hey, Nivy, are you there? Hello, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. So glad you could join us. Oops, you got, let me, uh, the, the screen. <laughs> I still have lost my setting that makes it like fix at one size. I don't know why, but at least I can adjust manually. Um, so, so what do you have for us to share tonight? Um, from poem. Uh, let me, uh, yeah, let me find it. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Is there something you want to say about it before you read it? So I didn't go for a particular person. In general, like, I didn't name names or anything. I just wrote it. I wish I were a poet. So that's, that's basically what it's going to be about. Not, not anything particular, but just... In general, well, which well, is something I, think I wish to be. So every everybody uh, you know who watches this <laughs> rattlecast can attest that you are a poet already. But let's hear let's hear it anyway. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept it, I suppose, with with uh, reservation. But go ahead. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. But I don't think I'm anywhere close to good as all you people are. So fingers crossed, one day I get there. <laughs> I wish I were. I wish I were a poet trying to write about wintry white days 
when my muse hunkers down for hibernation only to wake with the coming of spring. I wish I were a poet so I could coax words out of their cocoon in my mind and let them fly like a colorful butterfly from dawn till dusk and far beyond. I wish I were a poet so I could wield the pen, the pen that is mightier than the sword, and make you understand my thoughts, my feelings, my dreams, and my hope. But I am what I am, as I cannot hope to change the beginning, the beginning where my name was given, or the middle where I became what I am. I can only hope to rewrite the end to something I am proud of. I am a poet. Excellent. Thanks so much. That was Nivedia Karthik. Thanks so much for sharing Thank that, Nivedia. Thank you, Tim. Lovely talking to you. Have a nice evening. Yep, you too. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was Nivedia Karthik uh, with I Wish I Were. Uh, let's go to Terry Offner next. <clears throat> let's see what Terry sent. Hey, Terry. How are you doing tonight? I'm... I'm well, thanks. And you, uh, if you'd like to be on video, you got to click the camera button, but if not, that's fine, too. Okay. Let, let me get, uh, turn you off, uh, mute the, Okay. Uh, there we go. Okay. Now. Yeah, the little, the little camera icon in the middle if you want to be on screen. Okay. Sorry. But, yeah, no problem. Here you come. Hello, good to see you tonight. So, uh, where are you calling from again? I can't remember. Oh, Indy, Indianapolis. Ah, oh, that's right. And, and what do you I'm have? An, to... I'm an Iowa, I'm Iowa boy, but <laughs> um, so I'm an exile here in Indianapolis. Excellent. Well, uh, what do you have for us tonight? Postage stamp is what I see here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know if it really addresses the prompt. Maybe it does, kind of. If well, you. As long as as long as the prompt prompted you, then it qualifies. That's all there is to it. <laughs> yes, okay. um, my father was uh, an avid uh, stamp collector, so uh, this is sort of in honor of him. And I really apologize beforehand if I don't pronounce some of these uh, place names correctly, uh, because I've I only wrote the poem. I I don't I haven't read it before, so. <laughs> Apology beforehand. No problem. Yeah, let's go ahead. Whenever you're ready, go ahead. Postage stamp a fantasy. Afghani, Sunar Black, one rupee, 1871. The facts can't explain the facts. The father, true enough, had died. The youngest brother in India needed to be notified. The letters passage by raft from Surobi to Peshawar pleasant in the afternoon, frost stopped around midnight, fog rose to meet it, whitening the banks. The rapids at Jalalabad, not rapid enough, truth be told, for the stamp covered as well, Jalal's desperate declarations to Laili, why waste the postage? No speed can catch up. At its origin, the postmaster tore a corner off to cancel it. Lion head mandala, whole no more. Of the journey, the beginning had a beginning, which had a beginning, and so forth. The end curves. It bends. It bends again out of sight. Oh, that's an excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's Postage Stamp, A Fantasy by Terry Offner. Thanks so much, Terry. You bet. 
Yeah, Take care. It. Great reading too. Thanks. Thanks. Okay, that was Terry Ovner with a postage stamp, a fantasy. Let me look at the call list. We have um, so Sally Dunn, Patricia Rockwood, Carla Schwartz, Joseph Nolan, and uh, Gary Stephenson are on the people who've called in so far. But we also have Mary Bade Carr, Jackie Chow, uh, Sally Dunn, Susan Talley, Vicky Miko. So um, well, I'll try to read some poems too. I think we'll have time to read for me to read some as well. Uh, but let me do, let me read one right now. This is, um, I think Maribade Carr um, is a new mother and, and so can't call in because, you know, how it is having a baby. And um, so we will, uh, I'll read Maribade Carr's poem here. And uh, she says, uh, this story inspired me along with the stories my grandmother and father told me about their trouble buying their first houses in the 80s. I imagine this is my grandmother. And this is, uh, um, I think it's untitled. Um but she, it just, she just has open mic poems, so here it is. But we'll, I guess the title is the first line in the 60s. And let me put it into a uh, Word doc really quick. So you can all read along. Okay, so this is Maribade Cars. Let me put a... I think that's how Maribade spells her name. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not right. Maribade, B-A-I-D. Like that. Okay. So here is uh, here is Maribade's poem. Drop Terry down. In the sixties dirt roads led to the blacktop. Blackness hugged every exhale, bled onto every pen print. Unmarried, two kids, the answer was no. I marched into the seventies with teased natural hair. A decade later, long straightened against the bank's breeze again. No. Only after living in the government's bubble long enough for it to burst. A yes. Decades later, a lady with a righteous pen fired. A statement issued on stationery. She denied us all who breathed black. But how many pens have breathed fire onto blackness? So many stationery, unwritten words, under breath traumas. If only one group gets happy pens, striking through the overly righteous. That's righteous. And that's Maribade Carr with, uh, we'll call it in the 60s. And uh, love that line, the um, how many pens have breathed fire onto blackness. That's a very memorable line. Thanks so much for sharing that, Maribade. And let me call somebody else up next. Let me call up uh, Gary Stephenson, who called right at six on the dot. See what Gary has. Or is it Jerry? I guess it would be Jerry. I'm sorry. Jerry Stephenson. Hey, Jerry, how are you doing tonight? Hey, I am doing good. Good show. Thank you. And uh, where are you calling from? I don't remember. I'm calling from Gabriola Island, British Columbia, just north of the San Juan Islands. Ah, excellent. And what poem do you have for us? I have Habit tonight, Forming. Is that right? It's called Habit Forming, yes. Is there anything you want to say to introduce it, or do you just want to jump right in? I just, I, 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 and this one needs a little introduction because it, it uh, threw me for a loop. <laughs> <laughs> It did. I couldn't believe it. Just a short one. <laughs> Do you want me to start now? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you go oh, ahead? Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Habit for me. What happened here was I was researching your your prompt, and I love this prompt stuff. It gets me all excited. So I went looking for it. And I was thinking of a friend I lost. I wanted to speak in his voice, and I went down this rabbit hole, and I went, "Oh no, no, no!" So this is one of five. Oh wow. 
deep rabbit hole. Good one. I can yeah. go back and visit it, but I'll start now. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, taken to cruising hometown obits, hitting that staged time of life. I live vicariously through the passing of old school chum, bandmate, and friend. Stepped carefully across many grave sites, opened so many mausoleums and memories, and closed a few caskets. Lost acquaintances, relatives. Was that a great aunt of mine? Mm-hmm. Uh, three of my closest growing up friends, then just misplaced a soul or two, still living in fear of spotting a first love lost, <clears throat> my, my personal way back machine set a crystal ball for an old friend when they stumble upon my goodbye and bye. Excellent poem. Have it for me. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jerry. You're very, very welcome. Thank you. Your prompt got me going down there, and I misthought of this friend of mine, and it took me to places it wasn't going to, but thank you for calling. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, I'm sorry you, you, know, you lost your friend, um, but I'm, I'm glad we could spit off a bunch of poems out of the prompt. Oh, I tell you what, it's it, uh, your prompts have really boy, worked well for me. Thank you so much. Excellent. Take care. Have a good show. Have a good evening. Yep, you too. Bye, Jerry. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, let's see. Um, I thought I would just show you really quick. I'm, I'm not familiar with this poem. Amy Newman um, Howell. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, I thought maybe I'd share this. This is from the Poetry Foundation. Denise Duhamel mentioned this was what one of her classes uses. So I, I thought I'd share um, maybe how this starts. Let me uh, put this on screen really quick, because I was just curious. I'd never read this poem before. This is uh, Amy Newman's Howell. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by wedding planners, dieting and shapewear, dragging themselves in cute outfits through the freezer section for the semi-freddo bender, blessed innovative cloister girl pinups burning to know the rabbi of electricity and poverty, obedience, and the dream stick of opium and the green Wi-Fi fuse, who marveling and cramping and wired and allergic lock themselves out of the, their apartments in the trenchant imperfect delight of early day. We'll just leave it there because it's a very long poem, but I thought I would share a little bit of what um, Denise Hamill was talking about here with Howell by Amy Newman. You can find that at the Poetry Foundation. Just uh, type in Amy Newman, that's Amy N-E-W-M-A-N and Howell, and it'll pop right up. Um, very good poem. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of that later. As Denise was saying that I, I looked it up really quick. Um, let me see, who should we call up next? Let's call up Patricia Rockwood. Hey, Patricia, how are you doing tonight? Hi, Tim. I'm doing well. Uh, do, you want, do, you, do you want to come in on video? you got to push the camera button still if you uh, do. Yeah. Why do I always forget yeah. that? <laughs> I don't know. I think there's like a default and people either have it on or not. But anyway, yeah, so, so glad to see you. Yeah, hello. Um, Hi. And what poem do you have to share with us tonight? Um, it's, um, I decided to... Um, um, channel my mother. <laughs> um, she's gone now. She passed at age 91. And uh, after she broke her hip, she spent some time in assisted living. And it seemed to me to be a kind of a horrible place. So um, I'm kind of speaking in her voice in this poem. Oh, I'm so glad you could, could share this with us. Go ahead whenever you're ready. My hearing aid needs new batteries, and I can't understand what the aides are saying. They all are foreign. When is John coming again? It's so frustrating, stuck in this wheelchair, not even close to a window, 
Not that the windows open. I miss my birds. Patricia's mosaic birds are so pretty. I wonder when she's coming to visit again. Time passes so slowly here. I need a lot. I, I read a lot, write letters. I don't make friends easily, never have. I wonder when John is coming again. It's so humiliating to have to raise your hand when you have to go to the bathroom. And sometimes the aides take so long to come back to get me after I've pulled the string. I think maybe they've forgotten me. I guess it's almost dinner time. We're all, we always sit with the same people. At least my table companions are interesting. And then it's back to the big room for a few hours until bed. I wish someone would come visit me. Oh, such a sad, moving poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, I feel bad that we had to leave her there. but. Yeah, yeah, just the way life goes, you know. It's tough. Uh, well, thanks so much for sharing that, Patricia. Thank you. Yep, have a good night. Thanks. That was Patricia Rockwood with my mother in assisted living after she broke her hip. Um, let's see. We have... Um, Let's call up Sally Dunn next. Hello. Hey, Sally. How are you doing tonight? Doing okay. And uh, let me find your poem. Uh, here it is. Um, is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Um, just that it's uh, in response to the prompt, and um, it's a rough draft. I actually didn't think I was going to get to a prompt poem since I was slogging to my taxes. Oh, yeah, it's that time and of I, year. Although we get the break. We get an extra month. <laughs> yeah, I, and I was outside taking a break from uh, taxes, thinking oh, I'm not going to write a poem this week because taxes and poetry doesn't work, and then I got a poem. just came, so. Well, I'm so glad you did. Let's hear it. Go ahead. And it has nothing to do with taxes. <laughs> um. I would have power. If I was Alias, I would knock down those two trees that shadow my garden. I would not have thrown a tornado into my yard of brooding trees I wanted for shade. I've always thrashed my winds into gales near the equinoxes, but perhaps in September, when the ocean is warm and swimming a delight, I might calm them instead. I would reconsider my policy of slamming hurricanes into houses of the good and bad alike. I will not stop dropping trees on power lines. Coal smoke makes me gag, and strip mining is ugly. I've rattled the windows hard in the bedrooms of hellfire preachers, but only in the middle of the night, so they would wake afraid and at least and know at least one God is watching them. I'm not sure I would stop breathing across the prairies. I like to watch people grow mad with the endlessness of it. I would learn to play more, especially with adults, as they hold dandelion stems in trembling hands and lean forward to blow the seed puff because they dare to believe their wish might be granted. Those seeds are interesting. I should do something with them. I might send them on a journey across the ocean to an island they've never been before. The rabbits there would love that. Oh, I love that ending and the surprising place you took it. Thanks for sharing that, Sally. 
Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, Sally Dunn with I Would Have the Power. Um, I think we have time for some other stuff. Uh, we'll get to Richard Westheimer in just a minute. Um, I'll read a couple of the poems. Oh, Carla Schwartz, too, and Joseph Nolan. Um, yeah, so we'll get to all three. There's going to be time for everything. I thought I would share one. I tried to share some some poems from Rattle, too, on this open line section, and um, that made me think of one that, that would probably be worth sharing. It's my favorite IRS poem. Oh, that's the problem. Yeah. So the poem is not Dear IRS, it's Dear Internal Revenue Service. But let's play, I'll read this poem since uh, Sally brought up tax season. This is my favorite tax poem, and it's perfect for this time of year as everybody's doing taxes. So I thought I would share this by John Brem. Dear Internal Revenue Service, thank you for your letter informing me of the errors in my 2005 filing. I'm enclosing a check for $5,657 to cover the tax for which I evidently still owe and the interest on that tax. I would hereby like to ask, however, that you forgive the penalty of $1,136 since the employer failed to send me a 1099 for the income I made as a consultant that year. Of course, I realize it's my responsibility to report all my income, but in the absence of a 1099, I simply forgot. I have a number of clients, and I am obviously not the best bookkeeper. Nor am I particularly good with money. I'm a poet as well as a freelance writer, and being a poet isn't quite as lucrative as you might imagine. You may notice, for example, that for all of last year I received $57 in royalties. A friend of mine helpfully observed that I could have made more money as a parking meter, to which I replied that I could have made a lot more money as a parking meter and gotten a lot more respect as well. Unlike most hard-working poets in America, I don't teach, mainly because... I don't know anything. I'm probably not all that far from the cliched notion of the romantic poet you yourself may hold. I get stoned sometimes and stare at trees and clouds for hours on end. I try to see the wind, etc. I weep for no reason, remember real or imagined slights for ages, and lick my wounds with words. I live in a studio apartment, a garret, if you will. I have a huge desk. It's like the deck of a ship, and I, its landlocked captain, gazing out to sea. It sits underneath my sleeping loft, which my girlfriend likes to call the lofty loft, for reasons I won't go into here, as they may seem inappropriate, or too personal, or perhaps irrelevant to my purpose, which is to ask your forgiveness for the penalty, and to offer reasons why by explaining the hardships of the poet's life. I'll just say that sometimes it gets pretty lofty up there, and sometimes we imagine we're on a magic carpet drifting smoothly above the city below, and its its state of semi-controlled slow-motion collapse, and on on out over the ocean, which she loves and fears just like I do, or over the summer campy Catskills, where we can't afford to buy a country house with their worn-down mountains and charmingly self-effacing trees, so unlike the impossibly massive and overly serious cedars and hemlocks and Douglas fir trees of the Pacific Northwest, where I used to live until poverty forced me east. Those trees are brooders, dignified, misshrouded monsters, beautiful, of course, and awe-inspiring. I wonder if you have felt this, but I too, but too damply archaic and imposing and uncomprehendable for my taste. I like a tree you can take in with a steady, single gaze. I wonder if you are as bad at poetry as I am at accounting. Perhaps we are the inverted mirror images of each other. I don't imagine you get asked that question very often or receive many letters like this one. Maybe you're reading this out loud even now to your office, I almost said cell, mates. 
Of my book, a reviewer once said that one simply can't resist reading these poems out loud to someone else. And I wonder if you feel this, the irresistible need to read this poem out aloud. I'm sure the letters you receive are mostly angry ones, the kind that say things like, here, take my goddamn money and buy Dick Cheney a few more gallons of puppy blood for his nightly ablutions, or, dear IRS, please use the enclosed check to purchase some handheld rocket launchers to blast the fuck out of some poor Iraqi's house, which you prefer to call a suspected insurgent stronghold. Or, please give this money to the CEO of Exxon so he can buy silk socks while I regurgitate my supper and try not to starve. I thought of taking that approach. I felt that desire to get in a shot or two, to give voice to righteous indignation, treat you like a non-person, someone mindlessly and heartlessly saying no all day long. But I'm done with all that. I want to reach you, to speak to you as a fellow human being immersed in the same joys and sufferings as I am. Didn't you once write poems yourself, poems of anguish and loss and loneliness? and to remind you of the karmic delights of forgiveness that await you if you release me from this debt. And that was uh, John Brem's Dear Internal Revenue Service from uh, round number 30, the winter 2008. And uh, so that is a poem for all you out there who are doing your taxes this week or next. Just think about that. I can't help thinking about that poem every time I'm sitting here on my desk, like the prow of a ship. (laughs) And uh, that's just how it goes. So that's John Brown with Dear Internal Revenue Service, my favorite uh, poem for this time of the year. Um, now let's go to Carla Schwartz. Hi. Hang hey. on. I'm just shutting you. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Tim. Hey, Thank Carla. Thank you for calling me. Yeah. How are you doing tonight? Wow. I'm doing great especially after hearing that last poem. Yeah, I just love and, it. I mean, uh, that, that's one of those, it sort of starts straight-faced, and then, and then it just gets so funny. <laughs> I know, and I've been immersed in the tax thing, too, this week. Yeah, it's a good time of year. I, I, working on the rattle stuff, and then I got to switch to my stuff, too, which is not, not fun, but oh, well. <laughs> yeah. So this is a uh, persona poem, so uh, I think it fits the description. Yeah, for sure. Of, uh, walking inside somebody else and it's called Janine at the public bathroom. I could, Oh, you, you have it up. I assume. Yep. It's up. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready. Okay. Okay. I couldn't stand the public toilets even before the pandemic, how I first glove my hands in paper towels or the few pairs of gloves I keep in my tiny purse. Cute, isn't it? I bought the, this purse, from the street vendor, sprayed it down with alcohol, then washed it with soap and water. Now it's perfect for the gloves and the small bottle of Purell. How I love small things I carry everywhere. I'm careful not to touch the stall door or the lock with my bare hands. Rather, I close them lovingly and begin the real battle against the germs lest I contract ringworm, because doesn't it all begin with the toilet? I pull out a wipe from a 10-pack that I also carry with me everywhere, slim like me and so practical, and with a wipe in each glove, I lift the seat and clean. Then, with sheets of toilet paper, I carefully extract without touching the dispenser, dry it, until finally, oh, so pleasing, 
two squirts from my tiny spray bottle of air freshener down the bowl before I sit. Excellent poem. I love that. Very uh, imagistic. Thanks so much for sharing that, (laughs) Carla. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kim. Good night. Yep, good night. That was Carla Schwartz with Janine at the public bathroom. Thanks, Carla. That's a great poem. Uh, Let's call up next Joseph Nolan. See what Joseph had for us tonight. Hey, Joseph, how are you doing tonight? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. Do you have a poem for us? Yes, this is in response to the prompt, and um, it's about a person who suddenly wakes up as another person. Interesting. Um, I'm not seeing it here. Did you? Is it, it's not a supermarket in Boulder, right? That was the... Uh, no, no, that was uh, Sunday. Yeah. I did email this in, like, Tuesday night right after you know, oh, the show Oh, maybe it's, like, way down. Okay, let me see. To become another? I wrote it in, is that yeah, it? Yeah, to become another. Ah. That's it. Okay, great. Leah, let me just put it in a, in a doc really quick, and then we'll, we'll have you ready. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Just that. That's, you know, about a person who suddenly wakes up as another person. Excellent. Okay, go ahead and have you ready. It's, it's up now. To become another. Under foreign shadows falling, memory disappearing, I, another now, with strangers' feelings, to strange gods do I bow. These shadows new are all unearned. Recall now is failing. How did I become the one I am as though I were no other ever before? From one dream to another, candles wicks spark flames. Everything I am depends on memory's fleeting games. Paint my face upon an urn and roll it in the light. By evening it is faded. Still, memory captures images of life and flight. From one bird's wing in sky day bright, the lofting wind, a conscience sinned, but not mine nor its plight. I who ransom wisdom by all that I have known, now row another river. My old dreams have not sown. Uh, excellent poem. That was Joseph Nolan, To Become Another. And I love the, the rhythms and rhymes in that, Joseph. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye now. Yep. Have a good night. Okay. Um, let's do... Now, Richard Westheimer says only if we have extra time, but we always have time for Richard. Don't, don't you worry, Richard. Uh, I'm not in any rush anyway. Hey, Richard, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Tim. I was digging in. The, there are so many poems tonight. First of all, the interview was great. Denise has such an infectious energy. She and does, that, yeah. That, yeah, that's the first thing I, you know, the first time I met her, I don't know, 17 years ago. That was what the first thought I had. <laughs> right. And she writes great poems. And that IRS poem was just, I can see why it stuck with you. Yeah, it's a lot longer than I, I remembered it being. Though. I, remember right, it, I remembered a bunch of the, the sections, and then uh, I was like, oh, it keeps going, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's a great so, one. <laughs> so I didn't have a prompt poem, but I had. I went 52 weeks back. And this has been sort of like a recovery time of looking back in time and saying, what were we writing last yeah. year? Yeah, that's the interesting thing about the poet's response, too. I love looking back at a year ago and we're being reminded of the places we were in, you know? Yeah. 
Well, th this combines the letter poems we've heard tonight and pandemic, so I'll, I'll give it a, a shot. Yeah, I think it was a Poets Respond poem, so okay, uh, given that it's a headline. In Ray, Claremont County reports its first COVID-19 death. The patient was a man in his 70s with underlying health conditions. To the editor, if I die of this latest plague, the papers will write, the patient was a man in his late 60s with a history of heart disease. The news won't note that the chard in his garden was fully leaved, the ruddy color of the last sunset he saw, nor will they write of his daily runs through the woods, spooking scads of white-tailed deer, their feral musk scenting his trail, or of Shabbat shared again with his distant children, each lighting candles, one for the other, their eyes glimmer in candle flame and FaceTime light. And of course, they'll omit his last moments, that last breath, the rasping rails like sand blown against shattered glass, or that he died alone, measuring time by bedside beeps. But maybe they will say that he left a folder full of poems he meant to publish someday when he had more time. Oh, I love that ending. Great, great, uh, great thing to remind us of, Richard. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Good to see you. Yeah, have a good night. Richard, Richard Westheimer with, uh, in response to Claremont County reports its first COVID nineteen death, or Claremont County. Um, let's see. I think um, that is going to be it for callers. I do believe, but I'm going to read a couple, another poem or two that we had submitted really quick before we go. Um, let me do, this is Jackie Chow, who I haven't seen in a long time. Jackie used to come to our open mic readings down in LA, or, or the Rattle Reading Series, I should say. It was the same kind of setup. That's actually what this is based on, is um, the reading series we used to have. Um, we used to have a Poets and then an open mic, too. And Jackie Chow would come all the time. Let me share Jackie's poem really quick, and then we'll do, I think Vicky Miko had a poem. And... Um, here you go. This is uh, Jackie Chow, Girl in the Looking Glass, the Syllables. And here we go. Girl in the Looking Glass, the Syllables. Roll off my tongue like precious pearls bestowed on me in infancy. Their pale luminescence clashes with my Chinese features. Nuances of words learned from the lip movements of my more American classmates. The chatter of customers heard from an upstairs room in mom and dad's store in Chinatown. Christina Applegate's role in Married with Children, except my hair is black like liqueur, like lacquer. My face, a yellow target, inviting arrows of rage dipped in a deep river of hate that never subsided with time. Very timely poem from Jackie Chow. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jackie. That's Girl in the Looking Glass by Jackie Chow. And let me do another poem really quick before we go, because I saw Vicky Miko was on here. And this is a, let's see. This is Vicky Miko's poem for the prompt. Let me put it up really quick. It's a short. I'd have to be myself to be someone else. Reverse infinity plus plus the possibility of being greater than more than me. Interesting. So this is going to be interesting. I'll see if I can read this. Vicky, thanks. Um, if I were someone else's me, 
Would I be two or would I be three? A sum, sum, really. If I looked in the mirror, I'd be myself, plus, plus. Someone else, therefore. We would be someone else's other, wouldn't we? And so, how many others would that be? Infinity? And how would I know or care which one was really me? Really fun poem. Thanks for sharing that. I'm glad you wrote out the, um, the therefore and the, um, the sum. Because it's been so long since I took a math class, I forgot what the sum symbol was. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that, Vicky. Appreciate it. And that is going to be the show for tonight, I think. Let me do run, one quick run. Yeah, that's it. Let's do. Let's just end it there. It's already past eight o'clock. So uh, thanks everybody as always for joining me. It was a real pleasure. It always is, but it was sort of especially pleasurable today. I had a good time, um, and I hope you did too. Please do click the like button if you did. That's always helpful. Now, as I mentioned earlier on the broadcast, um, oh, before I do, yeah, this is the um, the prompt that we got from from Denise. So the prompt for next week is going to be right here. Oops, sorry, Richard. This is Richard Westheimer, but this is, I wrote it out. This is my sloppy handwriting. Write a letter poem to an abstract concept. That is next week's prompt. Write a letter poem to an abstract concept. Um, Denise has, I'll show you in the table of contents. Denise has a couple of these. There's, for some ideas, there's Dear Mortality. There's Dear Memory. I think I saw another one in here, but. Um, oh, Dear American Amnesia. That was it. So that is the prompt for next week. Write a letter poem to an abstract concept. And that is your prompt for next week. And uh, next week's guest, as I was going to say, was going to be or is going to be um, Alice Petway. Um, Alice Petway, of course, has a poem in the current issue of Rattle and uh, was a photographer for the Ekphrastic Challenge last year. So you can look up a, a photograph of hers and then what she picked as a poem and what I picked as a poem. That's how the Ekphrastic Challenge goes. Her new book that just came out, or actually I think it's still even forthcoming. I have a PDF version because it's not quite out yet, but it's very soon. Is Station Lights. Um, and Alice Petway is an interesting person. I know she travels all over the world. She spends a lot of time in China. She's sort of stuck in the States right now because of the pandemic. But she's a world traveler. Should be really interesting to talk to. I'm really looking forward to this new book, Station Lights, that we'll be reading from next week. That is Tuesday, April 6, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Rattlecast number 87. Hope to see you then. Um, in the meantime, we'll be doing our Critique of the Week on Friday. We'll be doing Poetry Spawn Live on Sunday. So do join us for all of that. Make sure you're subscribed and all that good stuff. In the meantime, have a good night, and I will talk to you later. Good night. Good night.